Do you believe that God wants to do wonderful things in your life? Do you believe God wants to do wonderful, amazing things in your life? I'm convinced there are some of us that don't believe that, that God's going to do wonderful and amazing things in our lives because we're just simply too undeserving. But there's also a possibility, I think, the reason why we don't believe that God's going to do amazing and wonderful things in our lives is primarily because of a lack of faith, a lack of belief. But the problem isn't really with God. The problem is with us. And it's a lack of faith in God himself. There was a, an interesting uh, little thing that I found today, uh, this week about an Army Airborne Ranger who was learning for the first time to parachute as a ranger. And uh, as he got ready for his first jump, he was very nervous, and he got with his platoon, and they gathered in the barracks there, and they went to the hangar, and they put on their parachutes for the first time, and they got in line, and they marched single file toward the airplane. They got onto the airplane. They boarded the airplane. They got in their assigned seats, and the plane began to slowly ascend to an altitude that it began then to sort of level off, and he knew that the jump moment was about to arrive. After a few moments, being just scared to death, the sergeant finally stood and said, all right, men, now it's time to put your training to best use. But before you do, I want to remind you of four things that you must be aware of before you jump. We went over this many times in your training, but there are four things that I want to remind you of before we jump. Number one, do not jump until I tell you to jump. Number one. Number two, after you jump, make sure you clear the plane, count to 10, and pull the first ripcord. In case that first ripcord does not work, pull the second ripcord, which will open your emergency parachute, and when you get down to the bottom, look for the truck, it will take us back to the barracks. So the young man was nervously waiting for the time to finally come, and the light came on, and the door opened, and it was time for the jump, and they all stood, and single file, one by one, they began to jump out. He got to that entrance, and he was told to jump, padded, and he jumped, and he counted to 10, and he pulled the ripcord, nothing happened. He pulled the second ripcord, nothing happened. As gravity was taking a hold of himself and he was quickly going down to the bottom, he thought to himself, you know what? I bet that truck's not going to be down there either. <laughs> it's possible for us not to trust the government. It's possible for us to be skeptical in regard to maybe something that someone has said. But when God has said something into our lives... You can count on that reality that when God says it, he will do it. It's not a question of God's ability, but it's a question of our faith in God's ability. The Bible tells us that Jesus went to his hometown, Jerusalem, and he went into the city and preached in the synagogue. And the people not only rejected his message, but they also rejected the fact that he was the divine Messiah. And because of that, the Bible says that he walked away from Jerusalem wanting to do many mighty works there, but because of a lack of faith, he did not. While faith is a gift, there is something that we must do in order to enhance the faith that God has given us. There are choices that we can make to strengthen or to weaken our faith. 
For the question isn't, can God do it? The question isn't in God's ability, but the question then comes, do we believe, do we have faith in God? Do we believe that God can do what he says he will do? That's what we're talking about today. For I'm convinced the real question isn't really, can you do it, God, but do I believe, do I have faith that you will do what you say or what you've said? To believe big. Abraham has been promised by God in several other passages that we have dealt with for the past several months that God would bless him with an heir, that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the, the grains of sand on the earth. He's been waiting for God to finally fulfill his promise. He even took matters into his own hands when he was tired of waiting on God and through another second wife, Hagar, he had another child that was not the promise of God. Now we find him in Genesis chapter 18 still waiting on God to fulfill that which he promised. In Genesis chapter 18, we find in the early part of that chapter where we studied last week, where Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent and he sees three travelers on a journey moving toward him. And as they approach, he recognizes who one of them is and he runs out to greet him and he falls on his face before his Lord, his Savior. Jehovah God. And he lays everything out before Jehovah God, his Lord, and he offers everything that he possibly has to offer to the service of his king, of his Lord. And God says, do as you have said. And he goes and prepares a meal. He includes Sarah and he includes a, a young attendant. And they get the best part of the meat and they cook some wonderful pancakes. And he serves them. And as he has served them, he stands then by their side, attentively waiting at Jesus' command for anything that he could possibly need. Now we come in Genesis 18, verse 9. The meal has ended. I'm not sure if they had a cup of coffee or not, but I can imagine that they must have. Because coffee is a divine drink. It's made of God. I believe it. And if you don't like it, that's your problem, Mark Mattingly. Tea is okay, but coffee is God's best. <clears throat> Sorry, doctor, I know that uh, you disagree with that, but that's okay. You'll see the light one of these days. Some of you don't know, but we have a, a doctor here who has a different diet and uh, advocates that coffee is probably not in our best interest, but... I'm entitled to be wrong as well. How about that? But I do partake of the nectar of caffeine. Anyway, I digress. So they're around the table. The dishes have been gathered. And they are having an after-dinner conversation. And it is in this conversation that we find one of the objectives as to the reason why Jesus and these two angelic beings make their presence known to Abraham. They're going to encourage him. They're going to strengthen his faith. For the promised child is soon to come, and they want him and Sarah both to know that the child that you have been awaiting all this time has now finally arrived. 
And we want you between now and then to develop and to establish the faith that is necessary for God then to move in this miraculous, this most wonderful way. And God, I think, in this text, gives us seven choices that we can make, like Abraham is encouraged to make, that will encourage, that will strengthen our faith in times of need. For God wants to do miraculous, spectacular, supernatural things in our lives, and we must then take the necessary steps, make the choices that will enhance our faith as God then begins to move in and through our lives to accomplish that which he wants to do. So choice number one, we see seven choices that reinforce my faith. Number one, I must seek close proximity. It's important that I seek close proximity. Notice verse nine. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? They, meaning the three who were there around the table, the other two were included in this conversation, and they inquire of Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? Where is Sarah, your wife? Where is she? Now notice they call her Sarah. More than likely, they have not met Sarah up until this point. They, remember, it was Abraham who brought the food. It was Abraham who served, and it was Abraham who stood by. It wasn't an attendant who was going to do this. It was the humility of the man of the house, Abram, who was incredibly wealthy, was serving Jesus and standing by Jesus' side. He would not allow anyone else to do this. He saw it a privilege and an honor to serve his Lord, and so he was there. More than likely, the other three had not encountered anyone else, and so more than likely, they had not met Sarah. Now, maybe in the dinner conversation, Sarah may have come up, but more than likely not, and so they inquire about Sarah. This could have made Abraham a little bit suspicious because if you remember earlier in our study of Abraham, he was afraid that Pharaoh would think his wife too beautiful and he would kill him in order to steal her as his own wife. And so he was, he was a very jealous, very protective man. And for these three to ask this question, if they weren't who he thought they were, it would have probably raised suspicions for him, but he did not question their suspicions or, or any fears. He simply answers, he says, she is in the tent. Now, why did Jesus and these two angels ask the question? Was it because they didn't know where she was? I don't think that's true. Why did he ask Sarah, I mean Abraham, where Sarah was? Why did he, why did, why did he say that? I think because Jesus knew that Sarah, while she may have been in the kitchen or maybe at a door close to the kitchen where she could overhear the conversation of those around the table. Remember, she was close enough to hear the conversation around the table. Maybe Jesus was sending her a signal, hey, Sarah, come a little bit closer. You know what, what I'm talking about. When you're eavesdropping on somebody... And you hear, you know, out of one ear, something that sort of interests you and it piques your interest, but you're involved in doing something else. You may hear partially what is being said, but not all of it. Now, all of a sudden, as she's doing whatever she's doing, partially listening and partially involved in what she was doing, then all of a sudden she hears her name, Sarah. What's that going to do for Sarah? She's going to stop, move a little bit closer, put her ear a little bit closer so that she can make sure that she hears everything and that, that happens from this point on. She is being drawn in by Jesus to intently draw closer to him because in that intentionality, she'll be able to hear what, she's going, what he's going to convey both to Abraham and to Sarah. He's drawing her in. Close proximity. 
I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why we miss many of the spectacular things that God wants to bring into our lives is because we are not spiritually close to Jesus. We don't need to physically come close to him because he's everywhere all the time, because he is omnipresent. So it's not a physical closeness. We're talking about a spiritual proximity. And if you and I are not drawing by choice spiritually closer to him, if we're not doing those disciplines, if we're not involved in those things that draw us closer into a proximity of an intimate love relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how can we know what he wants to do in our lives? How can we understand what it is that he wants to bring into our lives? The awesome, miraculous, wonderful things that he wants us to know about his activity and what he wants to do. If we're not close, we can't hear. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why many of us are missing on the marvelous, miraculous, amazing, wonderful things that God wants to bring or he is doing in your life is simply because you are not spiritually close enough to him to hear what he is doing. It takes a, a, a close proximity to Jesus to maintain that relationship so that when he speaks, we hear him and we understand what he wants to do. So seeking close proximity, I think, is the first choice that we must make. And maybe one of the main reasons why he's not doing marvelous, wonderful, amazing things in your life is because you are spiritually distant from him. And he's seeking close proximity. He wants to, hey, come on, closer. I got something I want you to hear because I've I've got something I want to do in and through your life that you need to be aware of. Secondly, not only should we seek close proximity, we secure God's promises. We need to secure God's promises. Notice verse 10. The Lord said, who spoke now? The Lord. Who spoke earlier? They spoke. Earlier they spoke. Now the Lord is speaking. I think one of the main problems we have in hearing the Lord is there are too many they's. Too many days. We're not hearing directly from the Lord. The Lord spoke. And possibly the vase don't have a corner market on exactly what God is up to in your life or what God wants to do through your life. The vase are the problem. We need to go to the person of Jesus himself and hear directly from him because we're in close proximity to what he's speaking into our lives. The Lord said, notice what he said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. I will surely. That is an emphatic, that is something that he is promising Abraham and Sarah as she's eavesdropping. I will return to you sometime next year. There's an about, that word about, that means there's a proximity There's something that has to happen in order for me then to to come back to you. There's there's not a, uh, the the word I'm looking for is there's not an exact time, but there's an about time. And and he's saying there's there's an about time, and he's about to tell them about when that's going to happen. But right now he's saying, I am going to return to you sometime next year, about this time next year, sometime. But notice he says, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's a prediction, or you might call it a prophecy, from the mouth of Jesus. And Sarah, 
your wife will have a son. He is very specific here. More specific than he's ever been with Abraham. Never has he ever mentioned, and you can check it out, and he the promise that he made Abraham that he defines or identifies as Sarah exactly by name. She's the one that's going to be and going to bring you the heir, the son that you need in order for your descendants to be as numerous as the skies and as numerous as the sands that are on the, on the planet. Sarah, your wife. Remember, he's already had a child by a second wife that was not in accordance to the plan of the purpose of God. He took on a second wife in order to have a son named Ishmael, which was not God's plan. That was not his purpose. And now he is clearly articulating exactly, Sarah, your wife, your original one and only wife. That other woman is not, in my eyes, your wife. But Sarah, who is your wife, she is the one who's going to give you not just a child, but going to give you a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind them. Now we see the whole picture. Sarah is where she is listening at the door behind them. The word listening is an interesting word in the original language. It indicates that she's listening, thinking that they're not aware of her presence. She is eavesdropping. She is listening to a conversation that she believes they don't know that she is listening to. But Jesus knows. He knows. That's why he called her by name. Come a little bit closer, Sarah. Listen. He knows. And what he said to Abram was also intended for Sarah. This was a promise and a prophecy that was given to Abraham and Sarah. It was not given to anyone else but Abraham and Sarah. It was specific to them and to only them. I'm convinced that God wants us to speak into your life specifically to you directly in regard to his directed and his purpose for your life. He, in an intimate love relationship, wants to invade your life and draw you closer to him so he can speak in your life what he purposes to do through your life. And when he does, it will be specific to you and you alone. True, there are generalities that apply to all of us. But God is that specific for you and for me and for us together. He individually comes to us with specific purposes that he wants to do as he did for Abram and Sarah, and he secu- they secured the promises of God. I think one of the main reasons why there are a lot of people who miss the miraculous, the spectacular, the amazing things that God wants to bring into their lives is because God's never spoken what they believe he's going to do, and as a result of that, they've missed it. I remember when I was a kid, and I was about seven years old, and I was convinced that I was going to get a bicycle for Christmas. And I just knew I was going to get one. And Christmas morning finally arrived. I went in there to check out what was under the tree. And guess what? There was no bicycle. My parents never told me that Santa was going to bring me a bicycle. But I believed that he was. Was that belief based upon what? My own expectations. My own preconceived ideas. They were were not from my father. And I think sometimes we're like that with our Heavenly Father. We, We claim things that God never promised we could claim. There are times when healing is not a part of God's will. He doesn't heal all of us all the time. There's a part of us, for us, for some of us, healing may may be a part of God's will, but 
pain and disease may be a part of God's will. I know that's hard for us to accept, but there's amazing, spectacular, wonderful things that could come through God when healing is not a part of his will. Paul prayed three times for healing, and three times God said no, and God finally says, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, sometimes we hold God hostage to things that he's never promised. And we need to be really, really careful that we're drawing closer to him to hear from him and from his word so that when he speaks, we know what he said. So then when we stand on his promises, we then can expect God to do what he said he would do. Number three, we need to see personal limitations. We all have personal limitations, and so did Abraham and Sarah. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. There are three Contributing factors to their human limitations in that text. Now is an opportunity for Moses to remind us exactly who they are and where they are. They're almost, or they're pushing 100 years old. I don't know about you, but that's old. 100. I remember one time we had a, a lady that we claimed her to be our grandmother, but she was an uncle's, a, a close friend's mother. And, and because we were so close to them, my parents were, we called her granny. And I remember when, uh, I think it was Aaron once, when she turned 100, he looked at her. I mean, you know, he's, he's a little bitty kid. He looked at her up and down. And he looked at her and she was looking at him and he's looking at her and he said, wow, I never met anybody to be 100. He was shocked that this lady was 100 years old. There are three things here. He says, we're old. We're old. It's an interesting word. We're old. They're almost 100 years old. Both of them, they're pushing 100. I don't know about you, but that's old. Not only are they old, but they were advanced in years. What does that mean? In, in Genesis 24, I think it's verse 1, we find that same phrase used to describe Abraham's life just before death. And what this is saying here is that they have one foot in the grave. You know what that feels like? Come on, some of you know what I'm feeling like. You're so old, you're anticipating your death. Sarah is admitting to herself, and, 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 and here she's about to, hey, we are so old that, that we've got one foot in the grave. We're, we're so advanced in years that we're expected to die at any time, at any moment. But not only that, notice that she had well past the season of menopause. Not only was she in a menopause, but she had long passed menopause. It was, it was an ancient history, an ancient memory on her mind. Can I get an amen to some of those ladies? You're glad it's over. She's saying, I, I've already been through menopause, and it's been so long ago, I don't remember what it was like. But, but I passed menopause. In other, in other words, what, what he is reminding us here is of the human limitations of Abraham and Sarah. Why do we need to understand our human limitations? Because faith supersedes human limitations. Let me say that again. Faith supersedes human limitations. It's not about your ability or your inability. It's all about God and his ability. And what he requires from Abraham and Sarah is the same that he requires from us, a humility that recognizes that in our human factor, we, we don't have what is necessary to make this happen, so we are completely and totally dependent upon you to make it happen. I mean, there's nothing that Abraham and Sarah could have done to become pregnant and to have a child. They're way past time. 
And if it was going to happen, it was all up to God. And the reason why it was all up to God is so that God could do it through them and that once it is done, he would be glorified. For God wants to do things so great in your life, so unexplainable, so wonderful, so unimaginable, that they are so great that if you ever told somebody you did it, they would go, you're a liar. Because there's no way that, that what could have happened, you could have done it, because this is so, so huge. This has the quality in it that it can only be explained, God did it. And God does those things often in our lives, not only so that he can get the glory, but so that others can see that glory working through us. Number four, stay emotionally grounded. It's important that we choose to stay emotionally grounded because a lot of times when God comes and he speaks into our lives, the first reaction that we have to what God wants to do, it's so amazing, so wonderful, so spectacular, we go, ha, 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 right. Right. Notice what happens to Sarah, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. Sarah, that's her reaction. It's an emotional response to what she has heard and understood what God wants to do. She laughs. Now, this laughter is to herself. I don't know about you, but I don't know how many of us can laugh and keep it to ourselves, really, when we hear something so ridiculous that we emotionally respond to laughter. You ever been around somebody and they said something that's, you know, and, and you just, you're not laughing out loud, but you're like, I think that's what Sarah's doing to herself. Not out loud, because remember, she doesn't, she, she, she doesn't think that, that Jesus is aware that she's being heard, and she doesn't think that Jesus is aware that she is listening, and, and so she... I'm 90 years old. <laughs> right. But notice, she said to herself, after I am worn out, how many of you feel worn out today? Am I worn out? And my Lord is old. Now shall I have pleasure? Three things. Notice her rationale. I'm worn out, meaning I am used up. I am deteriorated. I am not just tired, I am tarred. I don't have anything else to give. I'm done. I'm worn out. Not only that, but she said, my husband, he's old. I mean, he's old. He's pushing 100. He's old. But notice the word pleasure. Pleasure. The church up the street that uh, is putting um, ratings on their messages, I heard, this week. And the message they're listening to this week is PG-13. And they're warning people to stay out of the service if they're under 13 because what they're going to hear from the pulpit, no one under 13 should hear. Well, in my opinion, if you're under 13 and something's being said in the pulpit that is being said, you, sh you shouldn't say it. Right? Imagine us rating sermons. Well, this sermon today is R. <laughs> Where do you go with that? What kind of church rates sermons? I'm not going to rate this sermon, but this word pleasure here means intimacy. And she's thinking, <laughs> we're going to be intimate? 
That's a possibility, and there's some scholars who think that's what is meant by the word pleasure. But I think there's another word for pleasure where it means the pleasure of bearing a child. Because as I see it, and the Bible sees it, to have a child, now I know nine months of pregnancy, you don't think that's a pleasure? Amen, ladies? Well, there's parts of it that's not very pleasurable, right? But the fact that you, God has given you that incredible ability to bear children, that is a pleasurable thing. She's thinking, I'm going to have the pleasure of being a mom at 90 years old. <laughs> An emotional response. I'm praying that God would invade your life personally to the point where he says, I want to do something so amazing, so wonderful, so spectacular in your life that you're going to be tempted to respond emotionally. <laughs> but let me tell you, don't. And sometimes I think not only laughter is the emotional response, but sometimes fear, sometimes doubt, sometimes worry. And, and we have all these emotional things that come into our lives when God calls us and, and reveals to us exactly what he wants to do in us and through us. And we have a tendency to respond emotionally rather than to respond by faith. Emotionalism is a good thing, Baptist. It's not always a bad thing because we Baptists, as I've grown up Baptist all my life, we have a tendency to shy away from the emotionalism because we've seen other areas and other denominations of letting emotions go way to the extreme and, and they've been carried away into extremes that we think that emotionalism is not something that, that is pleasing to God. God made us emotional beings and emotion is not a bad thing, but we must guard our emotions to make sure that when God invades our lives and reveals to us what he wants to do, that we not respond poorly emotionally. Remember, Abraham responded with laughter, meaning with joy as to what God was going to do, not with doubt. Number six, stand in God's power. Verse 13, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? It's a rhetorical question here. Jesus is not asking Abraham for an answer. He knows the answer, and Abraham knows the answer. He's not asking from Abraham to answer for his wife. He's simply asking the question to make a point. And the point that he wants to make is described here in the reason for the question, verse 14, the early part of that verse, is this too hard for the Lord? Why would your wife laugh? There is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. And he, asks, he answers his own question after he asks it. He said, is anything, that word anything is all-inclusive. Is anything. There's no limitations to what God commands. There's no limitations. There, there are no limitations to what God wants to do. There are no limitations to the actions that he wants to invade and bring into your life. God is an unlimited God. He can do anything he decides to do. No holes barred. No limitations. Satan is limited. We're limited. God is unlimited in what he can do. If he wills it, he can do it. If he commands it, it is done. If he said it, you can take it to the bank. It will happen. There are no impossibilities with God. But notice that word, too hard. Mark hit on it earlier. That word hard doesn't mean hard in the sense that we think of it, but the word means wonderful. Amazing, spectacular, or awesome. Is 
anything too awesome for God to do? Is there anything too wonderful for God to do? Is there anything too spectacular for God to do? Is there anything too wonderful that God can't do in your life? And the answer is no. But wait a minute, Abraham and Sarah, he's going to bring into their life this beautiful gift of a son. She's going to become pregnant. They're going to have a child. She's going to give birth in, in just a little while. What about human limitations? They're there. But is anything too wonderful for God? No. Well, how's it going to happen? In the power of God. You've got a lady who is well past menopause, is going to conceive and bear a child. How could that happen? Only by the power of God. I hope and pray that God reveals something to you that he wants to do in your life where your limitations are not a factor at all. Because what God is asking you can't do unless God does it. And the only hope that you have is if God's power does it in and through you. Because greater is he who is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in humility, we have a dependency that acknowledges that as we rely upon, rest in, and yield to the power of Christ, there are no limitations to what he can and will do once we have heard him speak as to his activity and his command. Stand in the power of God, not in your own strength, for you do not have the strength, nor the possibility, nor the hope of making it happen without God. Number six, surrender all your expectations. What are the expectations? I don't know about you, but when we first learned that we were going to have a child, and his name is Matthew today, back in those days, in very early days, they had sonograms, and I know it's a standard thing today. We learned that we had a child. What's the next question you usually ask? When? I want a date. And they try to calculate the date and they try to tell you the exact date that you can expect your child to be born. And I can imagine when Abraham and Sarah heard that they were going to have a son, that was the first thing in their mind, when? I know we're going to have a child. I know he's going to be a boy, but when? And notice what Jesus says, at the appointed time. That's something you don't want to hear when you go to a, a, a doctor and they tell you you're going to have a child. And you say, when? At the appointed time. No, 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 no. I want a date. Let's calculate this thing. When was this child conceived? They don't really know, do they? Now, they can try to calculate, but they don't really know. And they put a little formula. I don't know if it's, it's calculus or, or it's algebra or whatever it is. Maybe it's trigonometry. I don't know. But they then try to factor out, okay, on said that your child is so, this is the date, and so you set that on your calendar. But most of the time, what happens? When is that child going to be born? When they're good and ready. When they're good and ready. When are they good and ready? When God says they're ready. Not until then. Now, we do have medicines today that can speed that up a little bit. But I hate to tell doctors they're not gods. 
And I have seen sometimes where that's tried to be, you know, they try to speed it up, but God's still in control of the birth canal. And he said, the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. This is, again, absolute. She will have a son. You need to surrender your expectations to God. When? <laughs> At the appointed time. No, 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 God, you didn't hear me. When? At the appointed time. One more time, God. When? When are you going to do what you promised to do? At the appointed time. What do I do in the meantime? You wait. Well, wait a minute. There's got to be something I can do. No, wait. Sometimes waiting is hard to do because we want to do something. We want to help God along, don't we? And he says to us, you've got to wait for the appointed time because until that time gets here, no matter what you do, it ain't happening. He determines and he predicts when that time is going to happen. And until then, you just wait. And then lastly, I need to share my unbelief. Notice verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. You find that interesting? I do. But Sarah laughed. That word laugh, I mean, I'm sorry, but Sarah denied it. That she denied that she laughed. But Sarah denied that she laughed. She denied. The word denied means to contradict God. She contradicted God. God said to her, you laughed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Can you imagine being caught with your hand in the cookie jar? Or... Maybe I saw the other day on, on the, the Believe It or Not or whatever it was, a little child who, who's sitting there telling his mom he didn't eat the cookie, but there's cookie crumbs on his face. I didn't eat those cookies. Really? No. Didn't eat them. And just, just cookie crumbs everywhere. That's Sarah. Contradicted God. She defied God. But notice her defense. Why did she do that? Because she was afraid. What motivated her to say to God, I didn't, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. You know, conviction brings, brings fear, doesn't it? I can remember many times when I was a kid and, and I get caught doing something and, and I knew what was about to happen after I got caught doing something I, I wasn't supposed to be doing. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Back in that day, it was spare the rod, spoil the child, and my parents didn't spoil me at all. Today, you can't do that. It's abuse. Uh, where were they when I was a kid? <laughs> Conviction set in. She was afraid. Why would she be afraid of God? Why would she be afraid of the Lord? Why is he someone that we've, we're afraid of? You should never be afraid of the Lord. You should never be afraid of being honest with God. For no one loves you any more than God loves you. 
And if we know that God loves us more than anyone else, more than we love ourselves, and God wants what's best for us, then why we should be afraid of someone like that who loves us with an unconditional love and wants what is completely best for us, even when we think we know what's best. It isn't. He knows, for he sees the past, the present, the future all at the same time, and he knows what's best. So why should we be afraid of God? And conviction has set in, and fear of exposure has caused her to lie. But I like what it says next. He, Jesus, said, no, but you did laugh. He's pretty direct. He doesn't waste a lot of words. He just says, no, you laughed. And her silence, her silence after that reveals her conviction. She's been caught. One last passage, real quick. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. It's not on your screen. Mark chapter 9. There's a New Testament parallel passage that goes along with this. Jesus is up at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's up there with Peter, James, and John. I mean, yeah. And, and as they're up there, something's going on down below. The disciples are down there. There's a father who's brought their, his son to the disciples. They have tried to cure the boy, and they have failed. And there's an argument going on between the religious elite and the disciples. Ha, 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 you couldn't do it. And they get into a theological debate, and there's a discussion. It's more of an argument. And Jesus comes on the scene, verse 16. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone for the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son to you, but he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whoever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. They weren't able. And he answered them, O faithless generation. Interesting, Jesus says, O faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. If you have... Something that's impossible, where do we go? We bring it to Jesus. And he thought of, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it was often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice that question. If you can do anything, we just saw that what can Jesus do? Everything, anything. And Jesus said to him, If you can, what kind of question is that if I can? I am the Lord of lords, the King of kings. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. That's what we need to honestly say today as we share our unbelief. God, I believe. Jesus, I believe. But I need more faith. I need greater faith to see the amazing, the wonderful, the spectacular, the awesome things that I believe you want to bring into my life. I have a problem with faith, but you can help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me. Increase my faith. And I make the choice to put my faith and my trust in you to believe that you are a God who is more than able. How are we saved? By faith. 
Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 said, if, it says, for gra- for, I'm sorry, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that it is not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God. What do we do to save ourselves? Absolutely nothing. For by grace you're saved through faith. Who gave you the faith to believe in Jesus? He did. He gave you the faith. You placed your faith and trust in Christ. You reached out and received him as your Savior. And he did an amazing, miraculous, spectacular, awesome, wonderful thing in that he saved your soul. And I'm convinced that that's the only thing he's done for you. It's not. But if it is, you should be content with that. Because your salvation in and of itself is amazing, it is awesome, it is spectacular, it is wonderful. And if we could come to full terms of understanding that reality, how amazing and awesome it is, it would revolutionize our worship service. Sometimes when we come to the place of worship or we come into the presence of God, we need to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Is there anything too wonderful, too amazing, too spectacular for the Lord? I don't care who you are or where you are today. The most amazing, the most wonderful, the most spectacular thing that he wants to do in your life is to save your soul. Paul said to a Philippian jailer, as he's speaking to him about salvation, to believe, and if he would believe, he would be saved, not only him, but also his household. Today, Today, he wants to speak into your life and draw you to himself. And he says, if you'll believe, you can be saved. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? If not, today's a wonderful time to make that a reality in your life. And he's drawing you unto himself. And he's asking you, by grace, through faith, believe in Jesus. And you will be saved. Do you need to be saved today? In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to Sing a verse of invitation. We're going to invite you to come. Say, yes, today I put my faith and trust in Jesus. And by his grace, he will save me. Maybe another time, another place you've made that decision, but you've never publicly declared your intent and your faith in him. The two that were baptized this morning, even though they were children, declared openly and publicly their desire to follow Christ in baptism. Maybe today you need to come and follow Jesus in baptism. Just maybe believer, child of God. You've lost faith. You've made the choice today not to trust the God who wants to do wonders, miraculous, amazing, spectacular things in your life. Maybe it's time you say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray.
Well, good morning. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the activity of God in two young people's lives this morning. First comes my friend Addison Barr. She comes forward this morning to say that uh, she's accepted Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior, and she's been looking forward to this day to come and, and share that with all of you and let you all know that uh, Jesus is her Savior. Uh, if you're a member of Addison's family or her friends, her life group, or anybody that's worked with her in Awana, would you please stand? Addison, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Yes, all right. Then it's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and buried with Christ, and raised to walk in the newness of life. <laughs> Next comes Ian Winters. He's been coming to church for a few months as well, been working through the Awana program. He says that he's accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior and has been looking forward to today to share all of that truth with you. If you're a member of his family, friends, life group, Awana program, or anybody that's worked with him, would you please stand this morning? Ian, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Then it's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Yeah, yeah. 